Good morning. Let's see if I can get up here. I've already spilt my water and uh, almost yanked the uh, mic off, so I guess you can hear me. All right, it's so good to see you. Thank you for being here today and for hanging in here. I, too, want to say let's finish strong. We only have two more weeks of Bible study, and then this semester is over. It's amazing. And what a glorious day this is. The weather has been so beautiful. So I also thank you for coming out on this day, being here um, when it's so beautiful outside. You know, we've been reading mail all semester. We've been looking at the letters from Paul to the Thessalonians, and we've looked at letters from Peter to those Christians in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. New believers in Jesus Christ. And we've talked about that those letters are also meant for us, that we can receive encouragement and instruction from them as well. And I feel like I really have been encouraged by them. Today we're going to begin reading our last letter for the semester, and it's Peter's second letter to the Christians in Asia Minor. And I just thought, do you like reading mail? So I brought some. This is like maybe a half a day's, you know, how that mail piles up in your mailbox. When I get the mail, I go through it, and I pick out anything that looks like it could be a letter to me that has my name handwritten on it. And I pull those out, and then I set the other mail aside. And sometimes I never go back to it for days. And then I quickly open these letters. Sometimes they're um, announcements. Sometimes they're wedding invitations. Sometimes they're uh, thank you notes or words of encouragement from a dear friend. I even have one gal um, that loves me that knows I don't like email, so she sends my uh, responsibilities that I've signed up for. She sends it to me in a letter, and I love that. So I open it up, and there's what I'm supposed to be doing. This kind of mail is the kind of mail that I like to receive. And this semester, I've felt like these letters have been that for me. I feel like these letters have been um, more exciting and just more influential than they ever have been before in my life. And I don't know what that is, but I've read them like they were letters to me. And knowing what Paul was thinking and knowing what Peter was going through when he read these letters to me has made them seem very personal, very exciting, very encouraging. And I hope that it's been like that for you as well. Let's open up this last letter. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is such a great chapter. I'm just uh, praying that I don't mess it up, that you really just see the light of God's word in this unbelievable foundational chapter, chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Now, we learned um, in the weeks past that Peter's first letter was um, written to the church in Asia Minor, and it dealt with uh, persecution experienced by the new believers. It dealt with how to cope with trials and hardships, extreme hardship, difficult times. And you remember some of those themes that Peter told them, to remember your inheritance, to walk in submission and holiness, to love your brother deeply, to um, remember and look for the blessings and joy and unjust suffering, and to remember that Jesus is coming back and wait for him with hope and humility. His first letter deals with problems from the outside. 
In this letter, this second letter, Peter is dealing with problems from the inside, specifically false teachers. They were the enemy inside the church. False teachers that were trying to promote untrue and damaging doctrines that were confusing them and pulling them away from the truth. And we're going to look at that in depth next week when we study chapter 2. In Peter's first letter, he talks about new birth for the believers in Jesus Christ. And in this second letter, he talks about growth. He talks about growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And that makes sense to us because physically, when we're born, we do not stay a baby. We immediately begin to grow. My little granddaughter, my little Hallelujah Hallie, she is almost 10 months old. Now, it seems to me like she was just born yesterday. But if you looked at her, you would know instantly that she is not a newborn. She began to grow immediately, and now she can crawl and pull up and walk around things. She can smile. She knows Grammy. She can take food and put it in her mouth and anything else that will fit in her mouth. She is growing bigger and stronger. So it should be with us as, a, as Christians that have experienced new birth. We want to grow spiritually. We want to grow stronger as we learn more about Jesus. And we should never stop growing. We don't want to stop growing until we get to the other side, until we go on to glory to be with Jesus. So in this uh, first letter, it was about new birth. This second letter is about growth. And in chapter 1, Peter talks about growing in our knowledge of Jesus. To recognize false teachers and false teaching, we must know the truth. And Jesus is the truth. He tells us that. We have it on your outline, John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. The answer to false teaching is a sure and certain knowledge of the truth of Jesus. Peter uses this word know or knowledge at least 13 times in this letter, 2 Peter. That is a lot. Knowledge is what he is talking about here. Knowing Jesus. And he tells us in this first chapter that a true believer knows Jesus. And he talks a lot about what a true believer looks like. Because if we know what a true believer looks like, then we can recognize the counterfeits, the false teachers. And a true believer knows Jesus. He tells us that we have been called by Jesus. He uses that word call or calling a couple of times in this first chapter, and he talked about calling at least four times in 1 Peter. So I wanted to talk today about calling, and on your outline I have a definition of calling. God summoning us to himself for salvation. The Bible Knowledge Commentary um, defines it like this. Calling is God summoning us to himself for salvation. It means more than being invited to receive Christ. It means to be summoned to and given salvation. God actually gives us the faith to believe. Romans 8.30 says it like this. This is Paul writing. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In this sense, calling becomes a link in the chain that begins with God's love for us. And it goes from all eternity. And it ends with our being with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. That's the glorification part. That's future. 
That's what's going to happen in the future. And I loved it when I came in Sunday and I opened up Ted's sermon notes. And there he had at the top of his sermon notes the five stages of calling. I always think that's exciting when I've been studying something and writing something. And then there's the preacher going to talk about it. And so um, I thought that was pretty encouraging. And you might remember those five stages of calling. The first stage was a call to faith. And that's what we're talking about here today. Call to faith. If you are a believer in Jesus in this room, you were called by God. So what's a believer to do with her calling? That's what we're going to talk about today. Peter tells us that we are to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. So let's begin looking at chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, talk about the knowledge of Jesus. It starts out, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. He starts out by saying, Simon Peter. He is the author of this book. Now, in his first letter, he just calls himself Peter. So you might ask yourself, why does he put his whole name Simon Peter? You'll remember that Simon was his given name. That was his Jewish Hebrew name. And Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. And we see that in John 1.42. Now, this is where Andrew has been with Jesus, and he brings his brother, Peter, to Jesus. And Jesus says this, and he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And Peter means rock. Now, some people think that Simon Peter used both names because his readers were mixed. Some were Hebrew Christians and some were Greek Christians. I really think that he might have used both of those names because he's older now and he's wiser. And I think Peter is very humble. And he wants to remember who he was before Jesus. He was Simon. He was that outspoken, overconfident, talking when he should have been listening, sleeping when he should have been praying, as we learned last week. He was the one that was a little prideful, a little bit arrogant sometimes when we think of Peter. That's who he was before Jesus. But then Peter, the name that Jesus gave him, that represents who he is after Jesus. Peter, called by Jesus, loved by Jesus. He has eternal life in Jesus. And then he goes on to say that he's a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I love that because, and this was in your homework, but an apostle was a very elite group. Those were the 12 men, and Paul is also called an apostle, that were divinely appointed by God. This is an elite group, and yet Peter, in humility, first puts servant. First of all, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. I think that points out his humility as well. Peter, the leader of the disciples, have you ever thought what it could have looked like in Acts if he had gone on? But he didn't take his position and his power to promote himself. We see Peter always submitting himself under the authority of Jesus. He is first a servant. And he says to his readers, probably the same Christians that he wrote to in the first letter, that they have received a faith that is precious. Now, received a faith, 
um, they received a faith because they were called by God and given a faith. And he calls it precious. He likes the word precious. We've talked about that before. But we've kind of overused the word precious. We mean, oh, that baby is so precious. And the pink blanket is so precious. And the little kitten is precious. And we kind of have this little sweet word for precious. Do you know what I mean? It's all, but let's not think of it like that. Precious to Peter meant priceless. It meant it had a value that you could not calculate. That is what the faith was, that precious faith. It was of a value so great we cannot calculate it. And then when he says that they have a faith as precious as ours, talking about the apostles, he means here that our standing with the Lord is the same as the disciples. It's the same. Even though they walked and talked with Jesus, we didn't have that experience Our standing with God is not diminished because our faith is not in an experience. Our faith is in a person. It's in the faith, our our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why Paul in um, 2 Timothy 1.12, I put on your outline, I know whom I have believed. He doesn't say I know what I believed. Paul says I know whom I've believed. And Peter talks about this person of Christ in this next little part here. He calls him God and Savior. He is saying Jesus is deity and Jesus is our Savior. Now, Savior in Peter's day meant deliverer. They were the one that delivered um, from trouble or from the enemy. Like a general in the army, he would have been a savior, a deliverer. Or sometimes a physician was a deliverer, called a savior. He healed and brought safety. Jesus is all of that. He saves us from our sin. He delivers us from Satan. He heals our sin-sick hearts. And he gives us victory over death. He is our savior. And then Peter closes this salutation with that common phrase, grace and peace be yours. We've talked about that in every letter that we've started. But I love Peter because he always adds, in abundance. We have grace and peace abundantly. And then he adds in this letter, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There it is, the knowledge of Jesus. We are to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. And that knowledge of Jesus is a relationship with Jesus. It's walking every day, growing closer and closer to Jesus, becoming more intimate with him. It's a relationship with the person of Jesus. I want to go on to verse 3, and we're going to look at um, how he elaborates on this knowledge. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything. Is this an awesome verse? This is foundational for our faith. And also this, this whole chapter is really foundational for our faith. We have everything we need for life and godliness, to have that life of spiritual vitality and godliness. We've been given everything. We are complete in him. Nothing has to be added. We don't have to run around thinking, oh, how can I get this, or how can I be this, or how can I... We have been given all of that. It tells us in this verse. Colossians 2.10 says, and you are complete in him. When we believe in Jesus, we are complete in him. 
He doesn't have to do more, add more to us. We've been given all we need, and we access it through the knowledge of Jesus. Do you see that? We access it through our knowledge of him. Now, I have a little illustration. It's not perfect, but at the hospital, we have um, narcotics on the floor, and we have them in a box that's locked. And every hospital does this, every floor and every hospital. They have their own box of narcotics that's locked. To access those narcotics, to get those narcotics, we have to have the key to open it and to take them out. So the narcotic key is a big thing, and it's kept in a special place, and everybody wants to know where the narcotic key is. Jesus is the key. It's through Jesus, the knowledge of him, that we access this life and godliness that we have been given. And then it goes on to say, Jesus, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, John Calvin calls this irresistible grace. My husband calls it the magnet appeal of goodness. And I kind of like that. And I just happen to have a magnet. And you know how that works. You have a magnet, and then something is drawn to it and sticks to it. This is what we um, are when we're called to Jesus. It's the magnet appeal of his goodness and grace. Shelley talked about that last week. She said that she read a gospel, simple gospel presentation in a Bible handbook, and she knew that it was true, and she believed in Jesus. And then she was compelled by love to do two things, to get a Bible and to find a church, because she had to know Jesus. She was compelled by love. We have that magnet appeal to Jesus because of his glory and his goodness. Let's go on and read verse 4, and we're going to see that um, the knowledge of Jesus leads to holy living. We've already talked about the knowledge of Jesus gives us grace and peace. That's on your outline. And through the knowledge of Jesus, we access spiritual vitality and godliness. Grace and peace, life and godliness. And now we're going to look at holy living. Verse 4 says, Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Did you read that? Through the promises, we can participate in the divine nature. We become partners with Jesus and we take on that divine nature through those promises, the promises of new birth. The promises that the promise we just read about of God's enabling power. And through that we become more like Christ. And so Peter goes on to give a list of what that divine nature looks like. Eight things that talk about this divine nature. So let's read those. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. I love it that he begins with faith and he ends with love. Kind of those two bookends. And Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And here we have it, faith and love. And in between, let's look at those things. And I want to make a comment about the word add, add to. It might be better translated um, generously given. 
We have these qualities, this divine quality, generously given to us. And remember, we access it through knowing Christ. So let's look at these words. The first word, faith, and then to that, goodness. And goodness can be translated moral excellence or virtue. And it really is describing a divine quality. It's not um, good like we sometimes use it, but it's good like God is good, that divine goodness. You know, we're not good in and of ourselves, but when we have a relationship with Jesus, when we are connected to the vine, goodness comes through our life. And then to that, there's knowledge. And this word in the Greek has the meaning of practical knowledge. It's that knowledge that is skillful living. It's that knowledge that in making decisions day to day, we have skill in that. Skillful knowledge. As we walk walk along with Jesus every day, our knowledge um, in him grows. And our decision making in our day to day life, in those practical things, also becomes greater. He goes on then to add to this skill, self-control. And self-control, I love that because in the Greek it means get a grip. Literally, get, get a grip. Um, the definition is the ability to take a grip of oneself. I think that's where we must get that phrase. I like that phrase. My children love that phrase. They use it with me often if I'm running around flustered and crazy. Like, Mom, get a grip. And uh, that's what that is, self-control. And it really has to do with our pleasures and our passions. It doesn't mean that we don't have passions, but it means that our passions do not control us. We have control over our passions. That's what self-control is. And then there's perseverance. Now, perseverance can sometimes be translated patience or steadfastness. And I like the definition for is. It's truly a divine quality. It says, the brave and courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us as we journey on toward God. Accepting everything that life um, throws at us. That's perseverance as we journey on towards God. We can't do that on our own. We need Jesus in that. And then there's godliness. This word godliness means reverence and piety. It really literally means to worship well. And it has the connotation, um, the idea of seeking to do the will of God as we, seek to do, as we seek goodness for the welfare of others. And that leads right into brotherly kindness. Now the word here is Philadelphia. We've talked about that word for love, Philadelphia. It's loving the believers. And we've talked about that almost every third week. This is one of the most important things I've gotten out of this semester, how we are to love our fellow um, Christian. We're to love them deeply, and we're to love them in a way like Jesus loves us. And in John 15:12, he says this many times, but here's one, one verse of it. Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. What does that mean? How are we to love each other? We're to love each other wanting each other's best. I want your best. I'm not thinking about my best. I'm thinking about your best. I want to love you. And I want to love you in a way that brings out the best in you. Give some encouraging words of affirmation to a fellow believer. Give them a smile. Bear, help them bear their burden. Walk alongside them. Take this seriously. We must love our fellow brothers deeply. Philadelphia. And that moves into 
agape. Agape, that's love that is divine love. That love for all mankind. Love for all men and women and children. That is the, God's love. And we want to love people like that because Jesus loves all men and we want to be like Jesus. So we don't just love the lovely, but we love the unlovely. We love those people that look like us and we love those people that do not look like us. We love our fellow believers. We're called to that. We also love those that do not love Jesus that do not have their faith in Jesus, that are out there believing in who knows what. We love those as well. The hard people to love. Now, does this seem hard? It's very hard. That's how we know these are divine qualities. We can't love all men with a godly love, except that we have taken on that nature because we are in Christ. And when we believe, it says that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We partner with Christ, and we have these divine qualities. We cannot do this on our own. But we do it through the power of God and those precious promises. And God grows us in this. Growth takes place. And what happens with this growth? Let's go on and look in verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Our knowledge of God makes us effective and productive. I think one of the translations said useful and fruitful. I like that. God uses us to love others, to help others, to proclaim the gospel message, to serve in the ways that God has made us to serve. Our shape, we talk a lot about that at Christ Chapel. We all have different shapes. The more we know Jesus, the more we become like Jesus, the more unique each one of us look. Because the the shape, the personality, the uniqueness that God made us, that is what shines through. We don't look more and more like each other. We look more unique like ourselves as we become more like Christ. Doing what God would have me to do individually. What he would have you to do individually. The better we know Jesus, the greater the wonder of grace. And the more real our experience of the peace which passes understanding. That comes from knowing Jesus. And when God changes us into this person of faith that has goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love, then we are overwhelmed with the power and the grace and the goodness of Jesus. And we're drawn ever closer to him. And as we're drawn closer to him, then Jesus in our life becomes more evident and we're overwhelmed and we draw closer. And do you see, ladies, it's an upward cycle until we are in heaven. It's an upward cycle. But it says here that if we do not see any of this developing, it is because we have forgotten what Jesus did for us. This is talking about that immature believer, that, mature, that believer that's not really growing. We don't see these, um, this divine quality. It's because they've forgotten what Jesus has done for them. And I love Easter. You know, Easter is the Christian's ultimate and best holiday. I love Easter because not only do we celebrate the victory that Jesus is alive, but we're also reminded, I'm reminded, of what Jesus did for me on the cross. 
And we need to remember that. We need to remember the cross. I think that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we forget what Jesus has done for us, then we don't grow. We don't partner with Christ in this divine nature. Let's go on here and read verses um, 10 and 11. And it says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when we um, live holy lives, that holy living confirms our calling. When we see those things in our life, we know this is divine. This is of Christ. And we recognize, and our calling is confirmed. We realize God has called us, and we are his as we see these things. So it confirms our calling. And this word here that um, you will never fall, it doesn't mean fall from grace or lose your salvation. It doesn't mean any of that. It has the connotation of an army marching. And that fall means when a person in the line would fall out of the line. What it's saying here is that as we um, stay in relationship with Jesus, our journey goes forward on towards glory. And he wants us to remember that heaven is our destination. And heaven is our destiny. Now, I am going to Tanzania, Africa in May. Tanzania is my destination. But something could happen between now and then. Something could happen to me or or in a minute many different ways, and I might not get to Tanzania. But heaven is my destiny. It's my destination, but I am going to get to heaven. You are going to heaven. It is our destiny. Someday we will be in heaven, and Peter wants us to remember that. Remember, that's our destination. Let's go on here, and we're going to look at these next 10 verses. Let me see if I uh, left anything out on your outline. Holy living confirms our calling. Okay, good. Now, we only have like about 10 minutes here for these next 10 verses. Uh, I've spent more time on this first part. It's very important. It's very exciting. But these 10 verses are my passion. This is my heart. Because this section, Peter tells us that knowledge is centered in the word. It's centered in the word. Let's go on and read um, verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things things. Peter wants them to remember the truth. Now, I've got about 10 jokes on memory because my memory is failing, but I'm not going to give you any of those jokes because we want to plow on here. But I love it that Peter is going to remind them. He wants them to remember. And the reason he's so insistent is because his days are numbered. 
He doesn't have much time. He knows that he's going to die. Somehow Jesus has made it clear to him that his time is short. And he wants them to remember the truth. Now let's remember where we are here. There's false teachers in the church. He's wanting to get them grounded in the truth so that they will be able to recognize these false teachers, that they will be able to recognize the false doctrine that, um, that they're teaching. And so he is going to go over some of these important things about the word. Now we know, first of all, let me tell you that Peter, we know from tradition that tradition that he probably um, died around 68 A.D. So this letter was written between 64 and 68 A.D. And tradition also tells us that he was crucified in Rome and that he was crucified upside down because he did not, he said he was not worthy to die the same way that his Lord had died. So they crucified him upside down. And I also love it here that Peter is um, not critical of these believers. Instead, he's encouraging. He tells them, I know that you know the truth. I know that you are firmly established in the truth. But I'm going ahead to remind you of these things so that you will always remember them. You know, Peter doesn't strike me as someone that would might be encouraging like that. To me, he's like, get to the point, just, you know, lay it out there. So I love it that he is encouraging to them. And I think it speaks to me, and I want to remember that lesson, that we get farther when we're encouraging instead of critical. Encouragement works better than criticism. So he encourages them, and then he goes on to tell them these things. He wants them to know that knowledge is centered in the Word. And first he talks about Jesus. Let's read verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. First, Peter talks about Jesus, and Jesus is the living word. And we know that from John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14 says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John writing this. John had seen the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. This glory that he's talking about here is the glory that Peter is talking about in the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. And I had you read that. It's in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but I had you read it in Mark 9. And we don't have time to read it again, but I want to just kind of remind you of what happened. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the top of a high mountain. And when they got to the top, Jesus was transfigured. It says he became dazzling white, whiter than any bleach. I like that. Whiter than any bleach. It was just so bright that he couldn't even describe the dazzling white. And then appears Moses and Elijah. Now Moses is Israel's deliverer and lawgiver. He represents the law. And Elijah is the great prophet. He was the one that defended the worship of Yahweh God. 
He represents all the prophets. So the presence of Elijah and Moses adds confirmation to Jesus being the Messiah. It confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. And we read here that Peter sees the majesty and power with his own eyes. With his eyes, he sees the power and the majesty of Jesus. Then it says a cloud envelops them, and Peter hears with his own ears the voice of God. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And he hears God's voice, and the Father says to the Son, This is my Son, whom I have loved. Listen to him. What that must have been like to have been there and to experience that. He saw it with his eyes. He heard it with his ears. It was the physical world. And then it's the spiritual world as Jesus is transfigured and becomes this dazzling white. And he says, listen to him. He has an eyewitness account. Peter emphasizes this. And he's telling them this is the truth. Now, that word, cleverly invented stories there, that is the same Greek word that myths come from. And we know that the Greeks and the Romans are big on myths. They had lots of stories explaining their gods and what happened. They were stories that they had made up. And Peter wants to make sure they know, we did not make this up. I was an eyewitness to it. I saw it. I heard it. These are not invented stories, but this is the truth. Jesus is God. And then he goes on to say in 19, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is certain and sure. Pay attention to it. Can you imagine if you heard the voice of God the Father saying, Listen to my son. I think you would be very um, insistent in saying, Pay attention to this. This is the truth. This is certain. Elijah and Moses, they were there. They confirmed it. This makes the Old Testament true. And so we can believe what the prophet said in the scripture. And the scripture here we're talking about, by the way, is the Old Testament. And now it also includes the New Testament that we have today. He's saying the prophets talked about Jesus coming as the suffering servant and he's coming as the king. So we can know for sure that Jesus is coming back. The prophets in the Old Testament um, told us that. And we know that that is true and certain because they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. So the word of God is true. Pay attention to it. And then he says the word of God is light. It illuminates. It's a light shining in the darkness. Now we know that Jesus is the light. He tells us himself in um, the New Testament that I am the light of the world. And I love it. When he comes back, he's going to be the light as well. It says um, in Revelation 21, 23, this is talking about heaven. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Jesus 
is light. But until he returns, we have the word of God, which is light. It illuminates. It shines in a dark place. And you know, the darker some place is, the brighter a little light looks. So that our world seems dark to us. The darker it gets, the brighter the light of the word of God shines out. The word of God has validity and it has authority. Pay attention to it. You know, Peter is saying here that he will die, but the word of God is eternal. Experiences come and go, but the word of God lives on forever. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Ladies, this word of God is light. Pay attention to it. And the Bible is also spirit-breathed. tells us here that it is the inspired word of God, that the Holy Spirit inspired men to write down God's words. These are God's words. This Bible is the inspired word of God through the Holy Spirit. And I love that. And that makes sense to me because that's why 66 books written by many different authors over thousands of years makes sense. How it all goes together. We see Jesus from the beginning all the way through to the end. It makes sense because this is God's word. That these men were writing these words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that um, is the same word as wind filling the sails of a ship. As wind fills it and it's carried along, so were these men as they wrote down the words of God. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Pay attention to it. The inspired word of God. And we know that uh, the Holy Spirit indwells us from the moment that we believe in Jesus and that we need the Holy Spirit to help us interpret the word. And who better than the one who inspired the men who wrote it? And Jesus tells us that. He says it several places in John, but I wrote John 16:12 on here, that he was going to send the counselor, the Holy Spirit, to us. And John 16:12 says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. We can understand the Word of God because we have the Holy Spirit to teach us, living in us. How will you grow in the knowledge of Jesus? One way to grow is by taking in the food of Scripture, the food of the Holy Bible. Let the Word of God nourish you. I want to close in prayer. And after I close, please keep um, your eyes closed and listen. The music team is going to sing ancient words. I just want you to think about those words and, and what we've talked about today. So bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are... You are awesome, you are powerful, you are good. You call us to yourself and you give us the faith to believe. Father, then you promise us all that we can have in you, life and godliness. Father, that we can walk along knowing Jesus more and more. Father, that is my desire and that is my desire for these women. Lord, that we would know you more. Every day, Father, that we would be drawn closer to you. Father, I pray that these words that we have looked at today would be alive in our hearts, that we would remember them, 
that we would pull close to you, Lord, because of them, that we would let your word nourish us as we know Jesus day by day. Thank you, Father.